This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. For more audiobooks and other content, please visit reconstructionistradio.com. Book title: Church Shift. Author: Sunday Adelijah. Published by Charisma House. Copyright: 2008. Narrated by Jason Garwood. Chapter 5. Hard work leads to success. Success in God's kingdom does not come just by finding your promised land, educating yourself, and becoming kingdom-minded. It comes by putting those principles into practice with great effort and diligence. One of the most neglected ingredients in many Christians' lives is plain hard work. There is no shortcut around it. I am convinced that hard work is the missing element in many people's lives and that many spheres of society today are suffering at the hands of the devil because righteous people have not learned to work hard. Hard work can create an unlikely ambassador. Hard work is the wealth of the poor man. Most anyone can work hard, and God will honor his principles by expanding the territory of hardworking people. Remember that God has exalted his principles above his name. He will not violate his principles. We can't just pray a prayer and expect him to expand our borders. We can't just find our promised land and say, Here I am, God, bless me. He has given us strength to conquer that land ourselves through hard work. I am one example of how hard work turned a nobody into a somebody. I had to learn to work hard at an early age as a matter of survival. To this day, I believe I am perhaps the most unlikely person to help lead a nationwide revolution in a former Soviet republic. Yet God is using me to disciple a nation, and I am believing him for much more. How did it happen? I believe it was partly because I learned hard work through very unfortunate circumstances. It became my ladder out of a life of kingdom irrelevance. Without father or mother. Unlike most people reading this book, I grew up with no possessions and little opportunity. I never had real parents. I was born to a mother who chose not to raise me and a father I never knew. He was run out of our village before I was even born because people said he was too violent. I never even knew his name. I grew up among 40 small huts in the Nigerian village of Idomila, Ijebuod, Ogun State. My grandmother raised me, and I grew up believing she was my mother. My biological mother visited occasionally with her new husband and children but I thought she was my aunt. I took the last name of my mother's family, Adelijah. The Adelijahs were a family of kings. My grandfather had been the king of our village, and two of my older uncles and one aunt served in powerful positions in Nigeria. My uncle was a leading figure in the Nigerian Institute of Foreign Affairs. My other uncle was secretary to the Minister of Economics. My aunt was a business tycoon, one of the richest women in the country. My family was Presbyterian, but we did not really know God. While I was growing up, my two uncles and aunt gave our family financial stability and enhanced our reputation among the people. In developing countries, families often depend on a few successful people to sustain them. We were not rich, but our basic needs were met, and my cousins and I had enough money to attend school. But when I was six years old, a great tragedy befell us. Those three family pillars died mysteriously within six months of each other. The coincidence was so strange that a major newspaper ran a front-page story asking, was it a tragedy or a curse? 
Many people believed witchcraft played a role in the deaths. The effect on my family was devastating. Our reputation and our finances plummeted. We were left without leaders. My grandmother, whom I believed was my mother, could hardly cope with the shock of losing three of her children. She went into a coma for an entire year. I was six years old and had no way to survive. I had no food. I was the only member of my family left in the village with my grandmother, who was now incapacitated with grief. I had no choice but to start working to support myself. I went into the bush and cut down trees with an axe, tied the wood into bundles, and took it on my head to the nearest city to sell for firewood. I used the money to buy food and pay my school bills so I could keep learning. When my grandmother got well, she joined me in the chopping and selling firewood. She also taught me to make a cereal from corn pulp. It was like a breakfast custard. I had three jobs when I was just eight years old, harvesting firewood, making custard, and going house to house saying, who wants to buy custard? Who wants to buy firewood? I kept attending school at St. Paul's Anglican Primary School, knowing somehow that education would provide a better future for me. I had to walk several kilometers barefoot to the city to sell my products and several kilometers more to the school in the nearby village. As I grew into an adolescent, I became ashamed and self-conscious of my jobs. It was humiliating to walk the streets hawking wood and custard, but I had to. There was no other way. Then an even worse thing happened. When I was 15, my grandmother died, and I was left virtually alone. I had to fend for myself, so I rented farmland and began farming cassava, a type of yam. I needed the additional income to finish high school. I needed to buy my uniform, pencils, and other supplies, and the money I made selling firewood and custard was not enough. So I cleared and cultivated the land and grew cassava. People in the village would point me out to their children and say, He is alone, but he is making a living for himself. I was a good example to them, but I was angry about my life. I thought there was no God or that he was wicked. I had older uncles whom I considered brothers. One had gotten a scholarship and gone to Moscow to study. He urged me to do the same. He wrote me a letter that said, The only hope you have on Nigeria is to get a scholarship. If you don't finish high school, you will live forever in that village. Scholarships were few and thousands of people applied, but I took his advice and redoubled my efforts to do well in school. I was getting some financial help from my other aunt, whom I considered my sister. She had boyfriends that gave her access to money she shared with her brothers and me. But when I was 18, she came by one day and said she couldn't send me support anymore. I got saved and I can't have boyfriends again, she told me. I felt like my world had come to an end. I had no concept of being saved or living right. I was living like an unbeliever. I went to church, but also to discos. Now, my one extra source of money was cut off. I managed to finish high school. I was not the top student, but I was good enough to have a shot at a scholarship. At age 18, I left my village to work in a polyester factory in a bigger village. There, I lived with an older relative and applied for a university scholarship. There was a lag time between when I applied and when I would find out if I received the scholarship. I worked all day in the factory, and I liked to come home and relax by watching the news on television. 
One day, a religious program came on after the news. The preacher caught my attention because he was a dean of mathematics at a Nigerian university. For the first time, I considered the gospel message. I became convinced it was true. I wanted God's forgiveness, so I went into my room and repented of my sins. It felt like 200 kilograms of weight dropped from my shoulders. I went to the street immediately and felt like greeting everyone. I was determined to go to the end of the world and tell people that God is real. I began to work even harder after giving my life to Jesus. Instead of just working my way out of poverty, I was now working for an eternal kingdom. Hallelujah. I could not believe the riches I had found. The gospel completely changed my mind and renewed my efforts. I became serious, ambitious, and determined to succeed in life. I stopped spending my time partying or running after girls. Soon the result of my application came. I had passed my school examinations and won a scholarship to study journalism in the Soviet Union. Six months after I met the Lord, I left the shores of Nigeria and headed for the heart of the communist empire. I was so new in Christ that I had never even belonged to a church. The Blessing of Work Hard work and the favor of the Lord rescued me from a life of oblivion. But many believers have wrong ideas about work. They think it's a curse, an obligation, a means of supporting themselves, or a means of getting rich. Even worse, some see work as entirely separate from their kingdom life. They think that working for God and advancing their own career are two different things. But God has established work as a blessing for mankind and for his kingdom. Work was part of Adam's calling before the fall. His job was to subdue the earth, tend the garden, and manage the animals. For us, hard work is a key to subduing our own promised lands. God himself works, and so did Jesus. Quote, but Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. End quote. John chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus worked and works still. Because work was established by his father as something good for humanity. During his earthly life, Jesus worked as a carpenter and as a preacher. He fully devoted himself to the ministry and showed a strong work ethic. Anyone who does not work disgraces himself and steals from the wealth of those who do labor. Quote, he who is slothful in his work is a brother to him who is a great destroyer. End quote. Proverbs 18 verse 9. If a man does not work, he gives nothing of value to the world. He is a thief. He is useless to God. We are made to bless each other through our labor. Work is good. You will not fulfill your potential in God's kingdom without hard work. Failure in life never means a person lacks gifts, but it may mean he failed to put the gifts to work. God gives everyone a chance to become successful. The resources you need to impose the kingdom on your sphere of influence are inside of you. Each person will give an account before God of how he used these talents and how much of his potential he fulfilled. Some people don't work because they can't find a job that will pay them what they want. Some don't want to get a job for which they are overqualified. But God will not give you something big if he doesn't see your faithfulness in small things. That low-paying job may be your first step toward discovering and ruling your promised land. Some Christians have amazing talents but experience little results because they have not learned to work. Others are nothing but dreamers. They sit and wait for a breakthrough to come. 
but they forget that success won't drop into their laps like manna from heaven. People who think that God will do everything himself while they just sit around and make big plans are pitiful. A few years ago, our church started a new system of home groups called the System of Twelves. We appointed leaders of each group, but instead of actively seeking members, many leaders waited for 12 people to show up to their meetings. When just one person showed up, they came back to us and said, This system of twelves is ineffective. Nobody came. But they hadn't added the key ingredient, hard work. Work has many side benefits. It gives us money to pay for our basic needs. It keeps us mentally healthy by focusing our minds on something productive. It keeps us out of trouble. It reveals our gifts and helps us discover our potential and abilities. Work is the gift of God to man for him to discover himself. It is the means by which dreams, ideas, and goals become reality. It allows us to become a co-creator with God. It makes us a blessing to other people. It increases our skills and abilities. But by far the most important aspect of work is that it allows us to exercise dominion over all of God's creation. As kings and priests of the earth, we are to do more work and be more diligent than anyone else. Quote, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. End quote. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 10. Quote, He who tills his land will be satisfied with bread, but he who follows frivolity is devoid of understanding. End quote. Proverbs 12:11 Only those who know how to work hard will be satisfied with results. God is not obliged to bless people who don't work hard, but he that tills his land will be satisfied with bread. It's time to start working hard for the kingdom. I believe I would still be in that village of Nigeria had I not been forced to work hard. Part of God's favor to me was teaching me that lesson. Let's all work hard to develop our gifts, passions, and callings so we might have maximum impact for Christ. Hard work is necessary to develop the nature and character of Christ in ourselves. And hard work is absolutely critical to successfully bring the principles of God into our spheres of influence and in turn into the life of a nation. Remember how much hard work and battle Israel went through to enter its promised land? Let's train ourselves in this key kingdom principle so the land can become ours for the glory of God. Kingdom Principles from Chapter 5 Number 1. Hard work is the wealth of a poor man. Number 2. Hard work is one of the missing elements in many Christians' efforts. Number 3. God has established work as a blessing for mankind and for his kingdom. Number 4. Hard work is a key to subduing your own promised land. Number five, Jesus worked and works still because work was established by his Father as something good for humanity. Number six, by far the most important aspect of work is that it allows us to exercise dominion over all of God's creation. Number seven, God is not obligated to bless people who don't work. Chapter 6, Thriving in Persecution Once we shift, it is not always pleasant business. Often it involves suffering persecution. But that persecution is never without purpose. 
The scholarship I received for a university education sent me to the Soviet Union. This was not my first choice. I wanted to go to the United States or Great Britain. I had heard much about the States as a superpower and the United Kingdom as another great modern place, and I wanted to see those worlds for myself. But the application board sent me to Russia. That country wanted to train people in developing countries like Nigeria, so they would return to their countries and lead communist revolutions. I was a little wary of going there, but I sensed God had a purpose in it. Before I went to Russia, a pastor in Nigeria told me, It will be difficult, but if you survive it, you'll make it anywhere. I left Nigeria in 1986 not realizing that I was about to get two educations, one at the Russian University, the other in the School of Persecution. There I learned that a key to ruling my promised land is to enjoy the School of Persecution. If you're not enrolled yet, you will be. I've been enrolled for years, and I doubt that I'll ever graduate. But guess what? I'm glad for persecution. Persecution has kingdom purposes. I'll explain why. God speaks to you in times of persecution. When I got to Russia, I quickly became frustrated and disappointed. I was expecting Russia to be an economic superpower like America, not just a military superpower. I was shocked at the low standard of living and the poor economy. Worst of all, there was no church on Sundays. There was, in effect, no Sunday, just a weekend. There was no place to learn about God. As a new Christian, I felt cut off from the teaching I needed. I cried and prayed, God, why did you allow me to come to this place? I tried to assemble the Nigerian students for prayer, but within weeks I was sent to Belarus to attend university there. I met a group of four African people who were involved in the underground church. To them, I expressed my frustration over being in the Soviet Union, and one of them challenged me. Why are you so frustrated? Why are you complaining? Ask God why he allowed you to come here. He must have a purpose. I had sensed that before, so I began to pray every day when I woke up and when I went to bed. I did that for two weeks. Then something supernatural happened to me that remains unique in all my experiences. I went to bed one night, and while I slept, Jesus came to me and showed me my future. I saw myself preaching to a huge audience of white people. I was seeing miracles and signs and wonders happen. The next night, the same thing happened, and again on the third night. I saw everything so clearly. I remember the clothes I wore. I was on stage with famous preachers. Then Jesus came, took the microphone from one of them, and gave it to me. The preacher stepped back, and I came forward. Jesus stood beside me. Miracles began to happen. I was calling out sicknesses. People were getting out of wheelchairs. People were coming to testify. When I woke up after the third night, I was shocked. My three roommates were asleep, but I was so full from the realness of the experience that I could hardly believe they had slept through it. I felt a strong urge to open the Bible, and it seemed to open itself to Isaiah chapter 61. The very first verse reads, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. I read it over and over, and each time it was like hearing thousands of voices in my ears, veins, and cells, as if the whole room was full of voices shouting, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. It was like a tide of water filling me. 
Again, I wondered why nobody else was waking up. Tears streamed from my eyes. I had never preached before and was only a young convert six months in the Lord. With those thoughts in my mind, I again opened the Bible and it fell to Jeremiah 1. Quote, Do not say, I am only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. End quote. Jeremiah chapter 1, 7 through 10. I closed the Bible to pray again, then felt like opening it again to Habakkuk 2. Quote, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me, and whatever answer I am to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets, so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time, it speaks of the end, and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. End quote. Habakkuk 2, 1-3 In obedience, I took my pen and wrote down my whole experience. When it was over, I was mesmerized and perplexed. I had to talk to someone, but I had to wait until after classes ended. Later that day, I caught up with my friend in the underground church to tell him what had happened to me. He brought down a notebook from his shelf and said that at 2 a.m., God had awakened him to write down this message for a member of the fellowship. It was a confirmation. Of my dreams. From that point on, God's visions went silent. I never had that kind of encounter again in my life. I studied in the Soviet Union for six years. During that time, the Christians I knew went through many trials. Some were sent to psychiatric wards, others were dismissed from the university, and some were deported. Those of us who remained worshiped together in silence. While I was in my room with my roommate, I would pretend to sleep so I could pray under my blanket. I had morning devotions in the bathroom. I often was convinced I, too, would be found out and deported. One time in my first year there, my fellow students heard about my religious interest and warned me to hide my Bible in the bottom of my suitcase and not take it out until I got back to Nigeria six years later. God does not exist here, they said. But I didn't hide it. I had even put a picture of Jesus over my bed. One evening after classes, I heard banging on my door. I opened it and saw four men and a woman, our dean, my roommate, a KGB officer, and a Communist Party official. They pointed to the portrait of Jesus and said, What is this? I said, This isn't a what, it's a who. Remove it or you'll be punished, they said. Religious propaganda is punishable by law. You could go to prison under Article 35. I understood then that my roommate had been writing a secret dossier to me. I had been betrayed. I was frustrated and angry, but I heard God say in that moment, This is only a picture. Remove it from the wall, but don't allow them to remove him from your heart. So I removed it from the wall, but I continued to grow in the knowledge of Christ during my time in Belarus. God trained me during the persecution. He taught me to rely on him. He taught me to be wise in how I conducted myself. He gave me a vision of my future that has guided me ever since. 
I believe he will do the same for you in times of persecution. In persecution, you learn new skills. Some people want to be released from hardship before they have acquired the skills God wants them to have. In my case, God knew he wanted me to minister in Ukraine, so I needed to learn the Russian language and culture. If I hadn't come to Russia and stuck it out through the tough times, I never would have learned Russian and would not have fulfilled the destiny God had for me in Ukraine. Even though I was hiding out as a Christian and occasionally suffering hardship because of it, I used the time to gain new skills and knowledge. When I came to Russia, I didn't know a word of the language. We were immersed in it for nine months and then started studying together with students who spoke it fluently. I had to take notes, listen to lectures, read, and do my homework in Russian. It was difficult, but I believed that God would help me to achieve it if I put in the necessary study. I used to spend six hours a day in the library after lectures. Other students, even the Christians, fell away from their studies and from their faith because of worldly temptations. But I buried myself in books and learning. I exercised myself in godliness and became one of the best students. I graduated from the university with honors. Only a few other students obtained that distinction, and some of them had to do the exams again. I was the only one who graduated with honors without having to retake any tests. The skills and language I learned during those years laid the foundation for what God asked me to do in Ukraine shortly thereafter. Kingdom nature gets in you. Persecution also reveals your character. It contrasts your selfish nature with the kingdom nature God wants to work into you. It then gives you opportunities to grow the character of Christ inside of you. When I arrived in Moscow during the heart of the Cold War in the 1980s, Russians hadn't seen many black people. I and the other Africans in our group of students were harassed. They called me chocolate and monkey. A Russian asked me once, When you arrived in Moscow, did they cut your tail off and give you clothes? Some Africans got annoyed at insults like this and wanted to fight people. But for some reason, I never got annoyed. When people stared at me or called me monkey, I was happy that I was giving someone joy. How are we supposed to respond to persecution? What should our reaction be? Our first reaction should always be joy and thanksgiving. Quote, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. End quote. Matthew 5, 11-12 we need to thank him for the tests because they lift us to a much higher level in God, bringing us closer to him. Hardships give us strength and confidence. The Bible says, quote, Rejoice always in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. End quote. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 16 and 18. Persecution may be the fastest way to become kingdom-minded. It's like a pressure cooker that pushes out the old nature. Our second reaction is well shown in the Bible. Quote, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, and do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. End quote. Matthew 5, 44. Every time we are persecuted, we need to respond with God's love. Persecution gives us the perfect platform to overcome evil with good. In every bad situation, we learn to see Satan's motives behind a person's actions. The person has nothing to do with it. 
The devil is the initiator of persecution. That's why the Bible says, quote, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. End quote. Ephesians 6, 12. Persecution is God's invitation to have a right response. We need not be irritated or angry with people. We need to love our enemies, to bless them, and to pray for them. Our third reaction is prayer for those who harm us. This connects us with God in the most powerful way possible. Jesus said, quote, But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. End quote. Luke chapter 6, verse 35. I am sure you have had ungrateful and wicked authorities in your life. Your job is to show them God's love and stand in the gap for them. Our church prays for the leaders of our country all the time, and in times of difficulty, our prayers for them intensify. Our fourth reaction is freedom from fear. Men cannot make us afraid. Quote, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. End quote. Proverbs 29, 25. We are free people. Galatians 5.13 says that we have been called to freedom. We are free because the Holy Spirit lives in us. Fear has no part in being free. Rather, it is a snare that prevents us from moving forward. Fear makes us an easy bait for the devil. By accepting fear in our life, we automatically allow it to rule over us. But fear is not one of God's qualities. It doesn't belong to us at all. Let's send it back to its owner. Quote, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. End quote. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 Finally, we need to be faithful and let God judge our persecutor. If people don't receive you or the gospel, shake the dust off your shoes and hand them over to God. It's okay to withdraw once you've been faithful. For example, there are churches in Russia that I oversee, but the Russian government revoked my visa, so I can't travel there anymore. Rather than warring with Russia in the flesh, I simply withdraw for now. I have been faithful to my calling there. I was willing to go, and I tried to go, but they stopped me. My job is to keep on loving them and blessing them, but to hand them over to God. A time will come when I believe God will open the border again, and I will travel there freely. Until then, I hand them over to him. Fear of persecution has limited the church and hence the power of God to the four walls of our sanctuaries. We enjoy the comfort of it so much we forget that Jesus left the comfort of heaven and sacrificed everything to bring his kingdom to us on earth. Today, he is asking us to go to the world and endure all the world can throw at us. The earth will become ours if we will only act as Jesus did in Philippians 2, 7-9. Quote, He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. End quote. 
Persecution is part of the Christian lifestyle. Expect it and rejoice in it as you grow into the stature of a mighty man or woman of God. Kingdom Principles from Chapter 6 Number 1. A key to ruling your promised land is to enjoy the school of persecution. Number 2. Some people want to be released from hardship before they have acquired the skills God wants them to have. Number 3. Persecution reveals your character. It contrasts your selfish nature with the kingdom nature God wants to work in you. Number four, persecution gives us the perfect platform to overcome evil with good. Number five, persecution is God's invitation to have a right response. Number six, be faithful and let God judge your persecutor. It's okay to withdraw once you've been faithful. Number seven, Fear of persecution has limited the church and hence the power of God to the four walls of our sanctuaries.